Ryan Stanton here with a set frontline joined here live Emerald Coast Conference. Well, recording it live, but um, what I mean by live now in the post-COVID world is actually in person, face-to-face um, -face interviews for the first time in, in quite some time for the podcast because of the COVID shutdown and joined by a good friend um, of mine through the years with ASAP, Dr. Michael Girardi, um, somebody who's always here, but I've, I've leaned on for a number of years through uh, ASAP and, and whatnot. And um, one of our great resources for the aspects of pediatric emergency medicine and wanted to grab him from one of his talks here talking about developing a pediatric stroke policy. And it's not something that we think about a ton uh, because we don't expect children to have strokes, uh, but we've all heard the stories and many of us have seen one or two or more. And if you're in the pediatric emergency medicine setting, it's going to be something that you may see even more, uh, but even more so like our conversation, um, the PEDZM discussion readiness project that we talked about just a few weeks ago uh, with Dr. Gauchi Hill. Um, this is another area where being prepared is gonna be key because um, it's something that we may not see with a ton of frequency, but it's gonna have a potential huge impact. So uh, Dr. Girardi, thanks for joining us again here on the front line. Hello, Dr. Stan. Ryan, it's good to see you. This is the first conference I've told the attendees today that I've attended and talked to emergency physicians since March 2019, and that was Tennessee ASAP. But a lot of them are here today as well. And uh, Annalise Sorrentino, who organized this conference from Alabama, she does a great job. It's an honor to be here. And it's a fantastic conference. Again, I think I mentioned every podcast I do from here. If uh, you've not attended this uh, conference, it's a fantastic conference every beginning in June, early June in uh, Destin, Florida, or San Destin to be more specific. And um, you know, it's, it's one that I've attended for about the last 15 years or so, and uh, minus the 2020 uh, hiatus, and uh, invite you to join us here as well. Great topics, great speakers, um, a lot of good visual diagnoses, um, especially with having yourself and uh, Dr. Sorrentino, who's also pediatric uh, emergency medicine. A lot of the visual STEM cases that we have are pediatric, which is good for us all. So let's talk about, let's di dive right in. What is the burden of pathology with regard to pediatric strokes. Ryan, believe it or not, if you live in a town of 100,000 people, three to 25 children would have a stroke a year. I grew up in a town of 100,000 people, Waterbury, Connecticut, and when I think of it in that, those terms, to think that five to 20, three to 25 of my kids and friends in high school could have a stroke would be appalling to me as a physician because we just don't think that. Making pediatric emergency medicine and adult emergency medicine in my career, I did not realize the burden was that great. But until my pediatric neurologist at my facility said, Mike, we need to talk about a PEDS code stroke policy. And I said, why? <laughs> so like you just asked me. Well, th this is the reason. You have a policy when something doesn't occur that often and you need a multidisciplinary approach to it. You need to have the radiology department, anesthesiology, intensivist, EM residency, attending faculty, of course, but nursing, all have to be working as a team. You know, Ryan, you do NASCAR racing support. You know mm -hmm. what a teamwork looks like more than anybody, besides work being an emergency physician. And everyone knows their roles. Everyone knows how to get things done. And time is brain, not to be trite or a cliche statement, but we all know that. And so children do suffer the burdens of morbidity and mortality from stroke. And that's why uh, I was happy that I was tagged to help the pediatric neurology division create a policy. 
And with that, with pediatrics, it's going to be something that we're seeing more often because we're seeing more adult challenges. I mean, it can happen anyway in the pediatric population, um, but with the growing incidence of obesity, hyperlipidemia, uh, diabetes, hypertension uh, in our pediatric population, we're going to start to see, and we've actually already done so, seeing adult diagnoses in pediatrics, whether even just past the natural occurrence uh, within the population, we're going to see those numbers grow as pediatrics starts to demonstrate more adult-type diagnoses. My wife is internal medicine pediatrics, and she runs a, a lipid clinic uh, for pediatrics in a couple places. And you know, she just talks to me all the time about a lot of these pediatric diagnoses that mimic adult diagnoses because of the American lifestyle diet um, and overall levels of inactivity. So give us some of the characteristics. We all, most of us, know the characteristics of adult stroke. Um, what are some of the characteristics, differences that we're going to see in that pediatric population? Okay, first of all, I want to underscore your, your comments about dyslipidemias and et cetera, and, but inflammatory conditions as well, mm -hmm. lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera, and these populations seem to be growing and we're knowing more about them. So let's go back to your, your other question. What are different? What are the differences? What are the similarities in presentation? Okay, one of the big ones is that children have more general neurologic symptoms than adults with stroke. If a person comes in a tundid and altered mental status in our adult world, they're usually intoxicated or some kind of metabolic derangement, um, hypotension, sepsis, that type of thing. In children, seizure could be the initial onset of symptom of stroke. So it's a generalized symptom without a Todd paralysis. In other words, a child could have a generalized seizure and that could be the, the stroke symptom. Uh, number two, they do have fecality, uh, and we tend to blow them off as hemiplegic migraines or a top paralysis, especially if it's after a seizure. But children do present with hemiparesis, uh, facial droop, et cetera, just like adults, and those sometimes are not migraines. They are, rather, they could be a stroke. Uh, they also uh, present with mental status. You would think hypoglycemia in somebody like that or ataxia, uh, vertigo. But you have to think stroke even in children. The other thing, the burden of disease in society, congenital, children with congenital heart disease are much more prevalent than they ever were before. They're all being repaired at a young age. They have plumbing issues that are different than we're used to seeing. And you can have a patent foraminal valley, you can have a VSD, you can have a low flow type uh, restructuring of your heart that uh, could lead to a clotting um, event. Also. Girls are on uh, birth control pills, which increases thrombophilia. You name it, all these underlying genetic predispositions for clotting disorders or thrombophilias, they could present as a, in a child. You know, and what is the age of a child, and when do they all of a sudden not have adult diseases? I've always uh, argued that there's a lot of diseases that occur in adults that do occur in children, and therefore you have to think adult-type diseases down to 12 years old, 13, 14. And especially with these, and, and now with COVID, the pro-inflammatory aspects of COVID, where we're going to see those increased uh, aspects. I mean, it seems to be more the multi-inflammatory multi, uh, yeah, multi-organ inflammatory syndromes, um, and we're seeing a ton of that. It, you know, potential for uh, DVT, PE, uh, cardiac, uh, neurologic manifestations of such in pediatrics. So right now, we're going to see even more than uh, more than baseline. Um, but as you mentioned, um, they're really diseases don't necessarily um, use age group. They say, oh, you're 18 now, you can have adult diagnoses. <laughs> um, 
but also, you know, one of the challenges we face, and, and as you mentioned, the reason for a protocol is the fact we don't see it a lot. And, you know, it's not going to be something that we activate a code stroke on a pediatric patient five times a shift. Like we've had in my hospital, it's not unusual for one 12-hour window of a couple of physicians and non-physician providers to see, you know, to have 10 to 15 stroke activations during that time. Um, but definitely, it's rare to go a shift without one or two in that case. So, so we're used to that process. It's on the differential to the point that, you know, sometimes, you know, we got to be careful for bias where we're trying to fit adult patients into a, a basket or keyhole them into a diagnosis of either stroke, ACS, or, um, or sepsis to the point that we may narrow our vision too soon and cause some bias there. But pediatric populations, the assumption is pediatric patients are healthy. And so in our minds, we don't want to let enter that acknowledgement of a serious diagnosis such as stroke in the pediatric population because it's not a pediatric problem. So it's very easy to kind of get ourselves, assume, get our, get ourselves away from um, that diagnosis by arguing that those things don't exist in pediatric populations. And so what you're talking about with this protocol is the fact that we have to have this in place so we can have that organization, that multidisciplinary uh, organization um, and, proto and protocol and process in place to keep it uh, on the burner uh, to make sure that it's uh, adjusted there. And you mentioned, you know, before we got started that, you know, a lot of things are going to be similar. Um, you mentioned some of the presenting symptoms may be different, but the evaluation may be different as well. Um, and this is one of the key take-home points of these protocols is the potential difference in the way we're going to approach the evaluation. How do we, in terms of imaging studies, approach the stroke, pediatric stroke patient? Three words, three letters, MRI. And I'd like to go back to your comment about the fact of our, our bias that to think that children aren't only going to have these processes. The reason it has to be on your radar more than other things is the reason is that you sometimes have to marshal resources that you don't even have at your facility. For our colleagues out there who don't work in a tertiary center, they're going to have to transfer this patient. And therefore, you're going to have to have a heightened sense of awareness that something like this can occur. In other words, if I need an MRI to, to eliminate the mimics, the big deal we need MRI, by the way, is because mimics. Children present mm -hmm. with stroke-like symptoms, but in fact, they don't have a stroke. So let me go there first, and I want to get back to what you're talking about, our bias against having seeing stroke. Children, if you take 10 children with stroke-like symptoms, nine of them are not going to have a stroke, maybe even more. They have mimics. They have vasculitis. They have a hemiplegic migraine. They have a hypoglycemia. They have some other metabolic problem or some kind of inflammatory process. Adults is the opposite. Uh, 10 patients coming through the um, door on a gurney with a, activating your stroke policy, um, nine out of ten are going to have a stroke and are going to, could, could be TPA candidates. Now, the reason we have to act quickly is because not everyone has the resources to take care of a child like this. And let me parenthetically say this. Mm -hmm. My career in emergency medicine since the mid-'80s has been that most children can be treated in general emergency departments. My buddy Al Sacchetti and I have been writing protocols and articles saying adult 85% of children are taken care of in general EDs. So these children are going to present to facilities that don't take care of pediatric stroke. They don't have a pediatric neurologist. They don't know how to do pediatric MRI with anesthesia sedation, et cetera. So if you have a heightened sense of awareness that children can present with stroke, then you should immediately be also working on getting that person transferred to a tertiary center where they can do an MRI, 
you have a pediatric neurologist via telehealth helping you or administer TPA right there. You could do a CT and CTA with the software we have now, have pretty good accuracy whether if it's a, it's a blatant hemorrhage, I mean a blatant thrombotic event, you may see that on a 15-year-old. And you could administer TPA. And I've also recommended, I've mentioned in the lecture, that you should definitely have a pediatric neurologist. We could push TPA, you and I, with the right support from uh, radiology, say this is an MCA, blah, 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 and doing that. But really, pediatric neurology should be involved. Now, that being said, pediatric neurology is involved with you uh, remotely or in person. You do the MRI with or without sedation. And the MRIs today, uh, Ryan, they can be done fairly quickly, so sedation is not as big an issue as people would think about. And plus, these kids tend to be a little bit older. They're not the two or three young cooperatives or four. But anyone with the altered mental status from a stroke may not be cooperative, but fortunately, sedation is not too big an issue. But you do have to be ready to uh, possibly activate them to get them to a tertiary quaternary center for something we haven't talked about yet, and I want to talk about large vessel occlusion in the pediatric population as well. But are we clear about the workup is different? In fact, you need at a minimum CT, CTA, or MRI with flare and perfusion type studies. A lot of them, and a lot of hospitals now, have a quick MRI protocol. I mean, just 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, you know, some of the larger centers had a large, I mean, had a quick pediatric MRI protocol. Um, and more often now, most uh, facilities will. Of course, a lot of places are still dealing with the fact that um, the, uh, the technician in the MRI, uh, MRI suite is the second most powerful person in the entire hospital behind <laughs> the uh, OB triage nurse uh, in terms of determining whether they do what we ask or not uh, in terms of studies or having access to that equipment. I'm, for, I'm very fortunate in my community setting to have basically 24-7 unfettered access to MRI. Um, and that's something that as we move forward, um, especially as we see these types of things, we need to make sure that those protocols are in place uh, because, um, you know, the, the whole idea of we don't do peds, uh, we're not a pediatric center, right. is, is not a reasonable argument um, with regard to time-sensitive diagnoses, especially such as stroke. And that's one of the big concerns. If this isn't on your radar, when you're talking about one of the chief presentations being seizures, uh, as a stroke onset symptom in pediatric patients more than adults, um, you know, the, very, the, the possibility of delaying care and getting outside intervention windows, um, you know, while we're working on other things that we assume this is as opposed to leaving that stroke uh, on the differential. Well, that, that's the thing. The reason my institution, Morristown Atlantic, agreed to a policy is it's a high morbidity event but very un, fairly uncommon. And therefore, that's where there could be breakdowns. You said you had seven to 10 activations sometimes in a day for adult stroke. That's not the case at all for pediatric stroke. Mm -hmm. So that's why everything has to be working really in lockstep and like a, a fine, fine watch. And then we have to all be working together at the right time. And of course, the, in adults, we're looking at more atherosclerotic disease as the etiology, uh, longstanding, um, longstanding chronic medical conditions as the etiology for the source for the uh, thrombotic or embolic events. And, you know, pediatrics is not necessarily going to be that case. Um, and so it may not have that long history of risk factors that make it more apparent and more obvious in terms of the presenting symptoms. But Ryan, they may not even have a pre-existing risk. In other words, if you mm -hmm. get a, a lacrosse to the neck or a, a, a bat or mm -hmm. an athletic event, you can have a, a vertebral artery dissection or a carotid dissection leading to a thrombosis. 
and uh, and even mentioning that, you know, obviously that's got a um, if we're looking across or or a a sentinel event or or something of that nature that we can identify. Uh, but you know the potential in delays of care and seeking care uh, with pediatrics in general. Um, you mentioned in your talk that the median time from stroke onset to seeking attention is that 1.7, almost two hours to 21 hours, mm -hmm. um, yep. but the average being around six hours um, from the initiation of symptoms. And you mentioned a lot of stroke mimics. And of course, uh, many times we're trying to fit pediatrics into the febrile uh, febrile seizure type of standard. Yeah, you're hoping they have a fever, right? Yeah, you're, you're hoping that they do. Um, and you mentioned that, that the majority of children presenting ED with neurologic syndrome uh, or a brain attack, as you call it, um, you're going to see the mimics, uh, as we mentioned as well, uh, more common to not be that type uh, stroke event. But still, it's something where they will come in on occasion. What is the data and information on the interventions? Uh, what's the evidence saying for the interventions for the pediatric stroke uh, sufferer? Well, well, people are probably listening out there saying, well, we'll give TPA for a stroke to a kid, really? Well, uh, Dr. Rivkin, uh, R-I-V-K-I-N from Boston, is one of the people spearheading the fact that we should be aware of strokes and rapid diagnostic workup. We think even though his one study did have to be truncated because of lack of enrollment, because there were only 35 kids in a Boston, a major medical center, in a year and a half. He's finding, though, that TPA, those interventions, they do work and that the children do very well. So there aren't a lot of data, but what we're doing is extrapolating from adult data that TPA can work. And the reason TPA may be even more effective in children is, is that we know with TPA data in adults, several studies show that if it's more than five to six millimeters in length, the clot is longer than that, TPA does not work well. Fortunately, in children, the clots tend to be shorter, so they're gonna be more amenable to TPA. Number two, the clot, what constitutes the clot, fibrin, platelets, et cetera, the structure and the age of them seem to be such that TPA seems to be more effective in that group. And the TPA dose is 0.9 milligrams per kilogram, like in adults, you don't have to adjust the dose per kilogram basis, and those, type dosing studies are available and are charts that help you decide to start the drip and what the bolus will be. So if you decide to administer TPA with a pediatric neurologist in assistance, agreeing that this isn't true, a thrombotic event, there is literature to support using FDA, even though it's not widely FDA approved or in many protocols that you'd be aware of, they, those protocols do exist that I could share with you. The other thing, speaking of that, I don't know if you're gonna ask me, but I would suggest you have a specific consent form for TPA for pediatric stroke, because it is off-label. Even though there's studies using it and showing it's effective, it's not anywhere near the body of evidence that we have for adults. Well, and even there, with the body of evidence for adults coming under question um, in terms of the data recently, you know, I think it is important to make sure that you have that shared decision-making and consent that's in place um, as kind of the Overall, TPA stroke literature continues to evolve and, um, and to the interpretations of such falling under a couple of different opinions. Um, what about um, mechanical thrombectomy or intervention with regard to uh, pediatric stroke presentations? This is something I really enjoy talking about because this is a cutting edge approach to a child diagnosis stroke, which we don't really spend much time at all talking about. But when you talk about it and you create these protocols that maybe have an intervention that can work, TPA is one thing. But if you look at large vessel occlusion data in, in adults, even the American Heart Association 
American Stroke Association agree that thrombectomy should be and can be considered in children. The limiting step for thrombectomy is really the size of the equipment. At my facility at Morristown Medical Center, our neurosurgeons, our adult neurosurgeons, are willing to do uh, thrombectomies as long as the vessels can accommodate their, their equipment. They know that the physiology is the same. They know that the procedure is the same. It's just a matter of getting to an M1 or M2 vessel and uh, being able to extract the clot. And that's a function of the size of the vessel. What me, being an eternal optimist, knows that the equipment's gonna get even better and smaller diameter. Shoot, we do cardiac catheterizations through the wrist. When I train, that, that was, you never think that could happen. So I am very optimistic. And the reason I like talking about this is that if we create protocols in place to identify pediatric stroke and you know you have limitations, you're gonna get that child to a center sooner. And the, what's really exciting is the American Heart Association stroke uh, guidelines that came out in 2018 are not starting to recognize a window for a thrombectomy out as long as 24 hours. Mm -hmm. You know, so we think TPA to four and a half hours. Maybe in children it could be extended to six. We don't know and have enough data, but for adults that may be even extended to six. But we know now that thrombectomies are being considered in patients with symptoms up to 24 hours. So if you take those kind of that kind of evolution in data. And number two, the fact that pediatric brains have so much plasticity, or in other words, ability to accommodate a, a, an insult like a stroke, then I think that we are in a new era of how to deal with thrombotic events in pediatric brains. When we're putting in these protocols in patients, I mean, your, your talk is about the actual initiation uh, of protocols in hospital settings. Uh, how is that, um, what are the main steps you suggest in terms of, I'm at a community center, um, we don't have a pediatric emergency department, we don't have a cadre of pre uh, pediatric emergency physicians, um, we're like probably the majority of emergency departments out there. And you know, we have a large pediatric focused uh, um, center like yourself, um, you know, that this stuff stays at the forefront. But, you know, we're talking right now to a lot of community hospitals out there that probably make up 95% of the hospitals out there in terms of not having dedicated EM pediatric uh, staffing and models. How, how, what are the steps for initiation, the key aspects within these departments, and as you mentioned, resource, getting access to resources for the pediatric patient? Yeah, it's a fair question because Back in the day, there weren't many pediatric emergency specialists who also did adult medicine like, like I did or do, and I think you need a champion. That's all. And I tell you what, these protocols exist, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I, Ryan, you know we just want to do your podcast. I put myself out there for people to contact me, and I could share with you our consent form. I could share with you our flow diagrams. I could share with you Dr. Rivkin, some of his, his flow, flow diagrams, how he had it done. But the way you start this is, Kind of in your mind, call the radiology department and say, I have a kid here with a stroke and I need an MRI. How would that work? And then you can see where your obstacles are or the barriers. I need a, a pediatric intensive care bed. Well, I don't have those. Let me see, How? who would I call? But you're not gonna wait for a PICU bed or transfer to initiate this protocol as you suggest. Mm -hmm. How do I, so you get your radiology, you sit down with whoever the champion is for pediatrics in the hospital, whoever the champion is for the chair of radiology and your pharmacists and figure out how you can, and also your own team, your emergency medicine team. If they're not gonna ever get, administer TPA in a child because it's off label, even though there's these protocols out there that I could show you, 
then you're going to have to transfer MRI diagnosis and then transfer is going to be your, your option. But you may go all the way down to the fact that you're going to administer TPA. And there is precedent and there are protocols in place. So with that, I mean, we discuss it. So starting off with the, with the big things is, is going to be your imaging and... MRI, yes, sir. Imaging uh, and then access to um, next steps, you know, whatever your care handoff. Because if we think about most traditional neurologists are going to be internal medicine-based, so not credentialed for pediatric care uh, in most cases. Let me stop you there. The pediatric, the, the adult neurologist, you know, internal medicine-based, may feel comfortable talking mm -hmm. about stroking a 16-year-old mm -hmm. in a sickle cell patient. I don't know. You're going to, that's something you could find out. At what age cutoff are you going to have to just raise your hand and say, really, I can't go there. I, I'm not trained. I don't feel com comfortable. So then you know that you're going to have a different algorithm. That's what you have to do at your site. You're basically creating an algorithm for treatment. And so everyone's aware of it, knows who to call, and how to expedite the care. Well, that's exactly what you're talking about, the establishing the systems and pathways for hyperacute pediatric stroke care. And um, what you want to do is, is know the potential processes that you're going to do beforehand. We don't want to be making these conversations with radiology, with the techs. Um, when we've got a child with, with a stroke syndrome in our emergency department, that's Even why it's important to ask those questions is we got to, those questions need to be asked and the process is established beforehand because what we fall back on when we have that, we don't do pediatric care conversation in our hospitals is the fact that then we aren't ready um, and we're asking these questions when we have an acute care presentation and not beforehand when we can discover and, and establish what that pathway is going to be. Exactly. Now, one question you're going to ask, who's going to read this mm -hmm. CT, CTA, which is, you should get if you can't get an MRI, or and if you get it, who's going to read that scan? Is it going to be a remote radiologist? Is it going to be your radiology resident? Is it going to be your radiology attending? These are little, de well, they're big details, but those are the things you have to nail down so you're not negotiating them at 3 a.m. And that's not going to be the same protocol for each, like your setting where you've got all of these tools in place. You know, my setting being in a relatively large hospital in an urban area with a pediatric hospital, critical care available mile down the street versus a critical access setting um, where you may have, may have more challenges uh, or rural setting in getting those next steps. The, yeah, the phone call should be, I've got a child here with focal neurologic deficits. I don't know if it's a stroke or a stroke mimic. I need an MRI or I need, I did a CTCTA, it's inconclusive. These are the kind of conversations you have, and you would be surprised how the doors are going to open, and they're going to—you'll be able to transfer those those people. And as you mentioned here uh, within your talk, um, you know, having establishing the access uh, to vascular neurologists, uh, vascular neurosurgeons, neuroradiologists, neurointerventionalists, uh, anesthesiologists, neurocritical care intensivists. Uh, you know, from the pediatric standpoint and establishing those processes ahead of time and making sure that everybody realizes uh, those processes. Because as you mentioned, and it is cliche, but it, it's accurate, time being tissue, which, you know, is, is being questioned now with regard to, um, you know, presentation and, and, and what the imaging says in terms of evolution. But at the same time, we know that delaying care uh, is not going to be in anybody's favor, whether adult or pediatrics. And so we don't want to be inventing a wheel when we need that wheel to already be spinning. Um, and, you know, with the pediatric standpoint, this is a low incidence but high impact diagnosis 
um, in pediatric uh, population. If you think about it, if your 75-year-old comes in with a stroke, MCA stroke, you know, they've, they've had a long life. They don't have a ton. Um, you know, they, they may be, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. But we're talking about pediatric patients with significant risk of long-term lifetime morbidity um, with another 60, 70, or 80 years of life ahead of them. Um, that can, that's a huge impact. And so it's important to have those conversations ahead of time. And it's why most of us, when we're looking at, like, the peds readiness surveys, um, at looking at your pediatric cart, having it organized for the low frequency but high impact diagnoses that come in, airway management, access management, uh, medication dosing, fluid dosing, you know, all of those types of things, having it available and ready to where we don't have the reps necessary, necessarily to know exactly what we're gonna do step after step, but having the algorithm and process in place that even without a lot of exposure to it, we can pick up right where we left off and intervene for that kid. Well, it's, it's kind of like toxicology. You learn about all these toxidromes and overdoses and antidotes that you see fairly infrequently mm -hmm. or rarely. A gentleman came up to me after my lecture this morning in an audience of 150 people. He goes, you know, Mike, we had a case with a 14-year-old kid with a stroke we transported to one facility, they didn't have the capacity. They transferred, this was a couple of years ago, they transported to somewhere that had that neurointerventional mm -hmm. capacity. The kid went under, underwent thrombectomy, and the kid's normal. So people, by happenstance or good medicine, did the right thing. Now, what we're just doing is putting on people's radar so that they can have the, the algorithms in place and co um, agreements, cooperative agreements to, to get these things done. Well, even just 10 to 15 years ago with adults, you transfer adults to a, quote, stroke center, but it may, be, it may not have access to uh, the intervention, so for right. thrombectomy aspects. So you may have somebody, and then so, and so we went through that evolution in community medicine, emergency medicine of saying, okay, access to stroke care, but do they have access to intervention, interventional stroke care? And so even that next level of discussion and so that's one of those things to establish in your area is, is where, where are my access points? Where is the patient going to need to go? What are the resources available and what are the steps? Your talk and, and actually I know you make available uh, the actual algorithms and, and protocols for how to kind of do stepwise, work through the entire process. I'm actually looking at it right now, pediatric code stroke initial approach, uh, looking at the ages. Uh, yeah, that's my algorithm. That's our algorithm. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way people, listen, this is, <laughs> I kind of laugh at it. 18 is a cutoff. The adults, if it's 18 days, 18 years old in one day, they're taking care of it. But under 18, no. They're, that's why we have, they're going to fall into the, the ballywick. But at your facility, they make care for someone without such draconian and black and white bright lines, black and white lines of age. And what we're looking at is establishing, you know, looking at the protocol, just a quick run over, uh, initially the age, the pediatric stroke screening questions. Uh, does, the, uh, does the child meet all the acute stroke criteria? And there's a pediatric NIH stroke yes. scale. Just so you know, I give you a link at that as well. MD Calc for you people out there who use it, there's a link to the pediatric NIH stroke scale. Work smarter, not harder. Uh, <laughs> yeah. These are not things to keep stuck in your head. Uh, right. Some of you will, but uh, for others, it's, it's where can you access it. Uh, number four is possible stroke confirmed by ED, uh, radiology, neuroattending, call pediatric coach stroke. Um, then uh, working our way over, actually you have another one, ED or Responsible Service Supports, and then working down to next page, 
Um, and then what are the interventions going to be? Emergent MRI, transport versus intervention there locally. What are gonna be the next steps uh, in, in running through all of that aspect of things? And you even put here at the bottom left-hand corner the initial supportive treatments, including one of the things that you need to do in order to uh, support that child um, blood from pressure, an emergency medicine standpoint. Like, like example, blood pressure management. Yeah, normotensive, uh, normovolemia, normoglycemia, um, normal uh, vitals, and then seizure control as indicated, and then work on that consent discussion uh, as you work forward uh, with the patient. And actually, I think the next thing after that is your uh, policy with regard to consent. Any take-home uh, messages, things that you, um, we've, we've had a little, about a half-hour discussion on pediatric stroke and, and protocols and initiation. Any kind of take-home nuggets and tidbits for departments out there as, as everybody starts to have a little bit of a panic thinking about a pediatric stroke coming in their doors? Try to find the best way to get a diagnostic modality that will give you enough information to have the appropriate intervention. They could be CT, CTA for a lot of children, but with these mimics to really differentiate them from like a vasculitis, et cetera, MRI, MRA, with flare, et cetera, these are, a big, these are the things that pediatric neurologists are really gonna need to decide whether to administer TPA. And last thing is, manual thrombectomy for LVO is in the, in the possibility of the treatment, possibilities yeah, of treatment. Keep it in mind, I mean, definitely. And that's, I mean, overall, if there's one thing that we can stress is, is at least having this on the radar uh, and establishing those plans. We don't want to, at 2 a.m. on a Saturday night, Christmas Eve, um, having that discussion with MRI of we don't do that. Um, it, it, these are things, the process that need to be established well ahead of time so that uh, you're ready when inevitably uh, one thing we never want to see uh, but may end up showing up at our doors uh, anywhere across the country, um, you know, whether you're a pediatric center or not. Um, even more important for us community emergency physicians and departments to be ready uh, for this in case it does show up. And the worst case scenario is you establish this um, have the protocol in place and never use it. Right, and that's just not a big deal. And, and fortunately, a lot of children with a focal neurologic deficit have a headache shortly thereafter and are a, a classic migraine with aura. But if it doesn't resolve quickly, the focal deficit, then you've really got to think stroke. Don't, don't be lulled into hoping or thinking it's a classic migraine with aura. So just be careful. Just don't write something off as a uh, as a non-emergent condition just because it is a child. How can folks get in touch with you, get more information, especially if they want uh, this discussion um, that you have with regard to the work that you're doing at your facility and elsewhere? Uh, mgirardi at asep.org, but also my, my cell phone. Text me your email, 973-464-3351, 973-464-3351. Interesting, you were the first person when we started doing these uh, podcast back five years ago or so that gave out your cell number and I was really concerned that it was going to get blown up and apparently since you're still giving it out um, they haven't blown you up too bad so Ryan I give it to patients I'm worried about or I, who we don't have a really good care plan we're like we're working it through it still but they don't have to be admitted I give my cell phone out people don't abuse it fantastic no and, and I like my car colleagues out there look if I have the resources I want to share them talking with Dr. Michael Girardi uh, one of our uh, friends, long-term friends with ASEP, also emergency uh, medicine, pediatrics, 
uh, side of things, always bringing great information and knowledge uh, to help us expand our practice, especially from the pediatric standpoint. As for me, you can contact me, rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org, at Everyday Med on Twitter, as well as uh, making sure that you subscribe to the podcast each week uh, to make sure that you get the newest downloads on whatever platform you like to use. Uh, we'll be there for you, and we're going to continue now um, as COVID starts to back down a little bit from a um, separation standpoint, and we start to see more conferences uh, bringing these, these live recordings um, with the experts out there to help us expand and improve our practices. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been Sapesep Frontline. Mm-hmm.